really great to see you. Absolutely. I'm, uh, you know, it's like Adam, Adam, Adam reaches out and there there's, it's like, I think I'm past like picking him up from the airport. I don't know what I'd like. I might help him move if he needed me to like grab some boxes out of storage. But like, as, as I'll tell anybody who asks, right. It's like, I get to Hotchkiss and uh, there's, there's, uh, there, there's, there's one guy at Hotchkiss who, who plays lacrosse and his name is Adam Pascal. So he's uh, on a short list of, I often, when, when I sort of talk about, uh, and, and I've reached the point and, and you can relate to this, but uh, my references are all so dated that the kids, you know, they look at me and they're like, what are you talking about? I made, I made a, um, I made a single white female reference at one of the talks. I don't know if you guys remember that movie, but the basically, right. It's like, so I always say that that one of the reasons why I feel like I was able to continue to evolve as a lacrosse player was I just I basically picked every at every stop and I have like I could give you the complete list from like uh, Ali McLean all the way up to Josh Sims and Jay Jalbert to the guys that I just like watched film I like studied the things that they did and Adam Pascal was like one of those guys on that list you know right around high school where I was like okay what are the things that this guy does and how can I you know because it's like you look at Adam Pascal and you look at sophomore Matt Striebel who's like 165 pounds soaking wet and it's like there's not a lot of overlap here but it's like I watched Adam as a high school player and I was like wow this guy this guy shoots 100 miles an hour righty and lefty like that was the thing that I saw right away and it was like okay that's got to be and then it was and then Saul Cuman which is a blast from the past but he was uh he was the other guy who was on that team where I was like what does this guy do and he had this box fake that was just just lights out like he would throw this box fake and half the team would go running one way but he couldn't scratch his head right-handed so I was like okay with the two of these with Adam and Saul I was like I have these two just like absolutely magnetic dominant midfield guys and I was an attackman but they were these 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 two sort of initial guys in my process of figuring out how to become a lacrosse player I was like okay these are two guys who can do this at a really high level what am I going to what am I going to take from them to make myself better well but you just described thank you for sharing that and you just described what makes takes somebody from being pretty good to good and good to great and great to exceptional. So that's really cool. I also noticed, and Adam will have to do some clever editing here, uh, as I was going on and doing my homework for this meeting with you, I noticed that, and maybe you were just incredibly smart and selective about which clips you allow to survive uh, about you out there in the, in the, in the YouTube verse, but you score as many goals left-handed as you do right-handed in those clips. And that's something that's super noticeable that I'll ask you a question about later on. But um, Adam, do you want to, uh, it's great to be here with you, Matt. Really, really to this already yeah. enjoying it. Matt, uh, so, you want to kick off? Yeah. Pete, what was your total at inside lacrosse? 20 or 22? 22. Okay. So get ready. Cause I'm lighting you up, brother. You feel free to do that, man. Somebody, somebody needs to, my wife has clearly forgotten. <laughs> Okay, so Matt, we're going to start it out. I'm going to say welcome to the show. I'm going to talk a little bit about me and Pete, and then I'm going to I'm going to brag about Matt a little bit. Take I'll, it easy. Can I read? Off, I'll read off all his sheet. Okay, Peter, you go, brother. And then I'll and then you, when I'm done, I'll be like, "Can you believe this guy?" or something like that that I would normally say. And then you could take it over, Pete. You guys are almost. You guys ready? Yes, sir. So Pete, you'll figure out a way. Uh, Matt, what was it you were teaching or studying at Iowa? 
I, I mean, I was I was in the creative writing program at Iowa, and I taught. I taught kind of, lit. Pete, good. Pete's looping in a book of the a book of the month today. Love it. And that, that will that that will be where I will first go with Matt because it is not about all the stuff that you're going to talk yeah. about, and we certainly will get into lacrosse. But I'm really interested to hear about that University of Iowa piece. One of the most because you're going to take the descriptive of us. Yeah, Pete. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, Matt, we're basically going to go for about an hour. Cool. Sound good? Sounds great. You're the man, dude. So just, I just before you get going, and you realize that if, if my dad knew how to how to do Zoom and he could be zoomed in and just listening to this right now, he would if probably dad, he would die on the other side of it of bliss, a happy man. I just want you to know that up front. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So okay. Welcome to Inside Roll with a side of pasta. I'm your co-host, Adam Pascal, and today I'm going to brag a little bit about my co-host, Pete Lasagna, and our special guest, Matt Striebel. First, Pete Lasagna, after a 40-year career in higher ed, 17 years at Brown University, 23 years at Bates College, three-time NESCAC Coach of the Year, eight NESCAC appearances, 2002 New England Hall of Fame inductee, 2011 Rochester New York Hall of Fame inductee, two-time NCAA appearances with Bates, final four, if I am correct, at Brown, one MCIMLCA Lifetime Achievement Award, and for 22 years, he owned the back page of the Inside Lacrosse. For Matt Striebel, hope you're sitting down, three-time All-Ivy League lacrosse player, two-time All-American, two-time national champion at Princeton University, one of a very select group of three-time world team members, three-time MLL champ, seven-time MLL all-star, two-time all-pro, my favorite, all-Ivy honorable mention soccer, and an academic all-Ivy League soccer to his name. But most importantly, he's here because he was a great high school teammate to me and my brother, and he's just been a mover and a shaker. And I have a couple of questions because I think he's one of the best midfielders and shooters in the world. But Pete, you take it over. Thank you, Adam. And thank you for that uh, deserved or not praise. I mostly coached lacrosse for a really long time. And if you do that, you will know a lot of great people. And sometimes they'll give you awards to maybe help nudge you into uh, the podcast profession. Uh, it's great to be here with all three of you. Um, we've all sort of grown up together, which is interesting uh, to be back here in this setting. Uh, we will take turns saying nice things about you, Adam. You were a pretty important uh, athlete and player at Hotchkiss and Middlebury. You two-sport stud, not unlike uh, Matt Striebel. And, you know, I'm just going to talk a little bit before we get going and, and talking to Matt to help for Matt and for the listeners. We are, our goal here. And for, for, four of these in, or this is number four, is to provide something that's we believe is a little bit different in terms of content out there with uh, lacrosse-interested humans. Uh, we are certainly going to dial down into some uh, granular detail, and I, I, like Adam, want to talk to you about how you got to be so good at shooting on the run with both hands. But we also strive to be something a little bit different, and, and really what we are conspiring to do together is to invite guests and listeners to join us for a lively lacrosse feast, which I'm 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 promising everybody we're going to get today. 
And we really want to ask shapers of the game to share what, how, and who shaped them. And we really, our, our goal is to honor the people, the spirit, and the gifts of the game. And it's really hard to imagine many people that are going to be better at helping us accomplish those goals uh, than you are, Matt. So it's fantastic to have you here. It's great to see you. Yes, we will get into the the epic recruiting dinner in which uh, myself and a Brown colleague drove you to Princeton University um, when we were representing a different Ivy League school. Uh, but I want to get off on a little bit of a non-lacrosse tangent because it's fascinating to me and I've never talked to you about it. Uh, you spent time at the University uh, of Iowa or Iowa University um, writing program, which I know as somebody who has spent some time writing and spent a lot of time thinking about writing, that it's one of the most prestigious writing programs uh, in the country. So tell us a little bit about how you got there and, and about your time there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's funny. The, my process of getting there pretty closely mirrors my process for ending up anywhere I've ever ended up. It's, it's sort of a, a couple decisions here, a couple decisions there. Um, this didn't work out. I wanted to do that. I thought about doing this. And then at the end of the day, it just sort of followed that path. So I was, um, first of all, I, I'm, I should have said this off the top. I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to be here. Adam, it was nine all-star appearances, by the way. Stop, stop short shrifting me. Okay. Nine oh, man. appearances. That's fine. No, I it's as a uh as as somebody who had to scrape and claw to get every everything that I got in lacrosse. I'm I'm making sure I'm taking it home with me. Um, no, so so I, you know, I was I was dead set on graduate uh, when I graduated. I, I really wanted to coach at the division one level. And, uh, I was, I sort of got into work. I also knew I wanted to play. So I was looking for something I could do to support myself while I was still playing lacrosse. And I think one of the things that, you know, is sort of unique to my story is I was a decent college player. I got to be a pretty good college player, but when I got out of Princeton, when I graduated, there was a lot of meat still on the bone personally for me to want to continue playing. So in my head, I was like, okay, I want to continue playing. I want to see how good I can get at this game. And I need something to do to sort of allow that to happen. So on my list, it was, okay, I'm going to, I'm thinking I'm going to coach for a couple of years, apply to law school, possibly apply to getting a, a PhD in English. So those were the things I had going around in my head. I went back, I coached for a year at Princeton. I loved it. And then I spent a summer on the road recruiting and anybody who spends a summer on the road recruiting realizes pretty quickly. It's like, it's one of the most miserable things you can do. I mean, there are people and, and, and coach Matsy is one of my best friends and he's been doing it forever. And there's some people apparently who like sitting in folding chairs in the blazing sun and watching kids play lacrosse over and over and over again. I'm not somebody who could do that. So I was at, I was at the university or sorry, I was at Princeton coaching and I, you know, I'm sitting in the office and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, different, different, uh, uh, PhD programs for English. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking as I'm doing this, it's sort of what happened to me when I was, when I was graduating from Princeton, I was looking at jobs and finance, like everybody else who plays lacrosse. And I went to an interview and one of, one of the guys who graduated from Princeton, I was sitting there and I was in my suit and tie and, pretending to go through the motions of applying for this job. And this guy looked at me and he's like, Streeves, what are you doing here? You Can you imagine sitting behind a desk for 
15 hours a day. And I was like, no. And he's like, well, then get out of here. So I'm sitting in, in, in the Princeton lacrosse office and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm running to the Wawa to get apple slices and peanut butter for coach Tierney and, and answering phones and crushing film with coach Matts. And, um, I, I'm thinking in the back of my head, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I started thinking about these PhD programs and I was like, ah, you know what? I, I don't, I, what I've always really liked. And I had this sort of secret hobby when I was in high school, I always liked writing and it was something that, that. I think as athletes, there are a lot of guys out there, whether it's playing music or doing these sort of side things that help to balance out the pathology that's going on in your brain at all times as an athlete, I think. And for me, that was a big part of that was just sort of writing. And I've always been sort of a, somebody who's, you know, can go into a room and spend four hours by myself, just sort of jotting things down. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to apply for some of these programs. And I actually went to the bread loaf I needed recs from writers. I needed some kind, you know, it's like I had none of this. The, my big regret at Princeton was I was a two-sport athlete and that prevented me from doing some of the academic things I wanted to do. And, you know, it's like Princeton has this insane writing program. I never got to take advantage of it there. Um, so I was, I was basically looking at this application. I'm like, I need somebody to recommend me to these programs. So I went to the Breadloaf program, which is basically a two-week writer's nerd camp at Middlebury. Um, and I came out of that, um, having met my wife and having basically made enough connections that I was able to apply to schools. And my wife was actually at the university of Iowa in the poetry program at the same time. And, uh, I went out to visit her. It, it was kind of an insane time. Cause it's, it, the, the, the Middlebury program, Breadloaf, overlapped with the last game of the regular season for the MLL and then the MLL playoffs. So I actually, on the Friday of the first week of the Breadloaf program, I drove from uh, Middlebury down to Albany to catch a flight, to fly to Philly, to play against the Cannons, immediately got back on a flight, flew back to Breadloaf, finished the second week. And then at the end of the second week, uh, I had to drive down to Boston to play in the semis and the finals of our first barrage MLL cha uh, championship against the Cannons. So it was like this crazy time where I was doing the writing thing, going to Boston and Philadelphia to play lacrosse. And that's kind of how my life has always been. It's sort of, I'm doing soccer, then I'm doing lacrosse, then I'm doing, and everybody always said at some point along the line, you're going to have to choose, you're going to have to stop doing this. And I was like, I've been doing this my whole life. Why am I going to stop now? So long story short, as I warned Adams, right? I, or Adam, I can, I can talk uh, a blue streak here, but I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into Iowa. I called my girlfriend, now my wife. And I was like, Hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And she's like, what's the good news? And I was like, well, I got into school. And she's like, what's the bad news? And I was like, I got into Iowa. I think I want to go there. And she's like, okay, cool. I can spend another two years living in Iowa city. And so I went out there to Iowa and um, I loved it. Right. It's like you go to Princeton and Princeton's an crazy, it, it's, it's an amazing institution. It's a crazy school to be a part of. It's, it's all those great things, but then you go to the university of Iowa and you experience big 10 football and you're like, Holy smokes. Have I been missing this my entire college career? And I got to, I got to basically learn how to write in two years, work with some amazing, amazing writers and people. And, um, it was, it was just, I think, you know, looking at how I made those decisions throughout my life, the the one sort of consistent 
aspect of how those decisions were made were basically, I just want to challenge myself at the best possible place I can and see if, because in my head, I was like, well, if I can hack it there, then I'm as good as I think I am. And so that's, it was sort of like Iowa was the best. And I was like, well, if I got in, I want to go learn from the best. So that was it. Wow. That is really cool. And I would have to say without patting the three of us on our backs too hard, we have just succeeded in you, me asking you and you answering one question, separating ourselves from most other people that are creating this kind of content. So thank you. That was fantastic. So I have to ask you, as somebody that shares only a t- the tiniest part of your collegiate experience, because everything you did was better than anything I did in college, I went to college with the only thing I had any academic confidence in was my ability to write, which I thought might separate me from all the other people that were being recruited to play lacrosse at Brown in that era. Again, we could all do the joke about being the best writing lacrosse player in that year is truly the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind. But there were at Brown University, I thought I was going to do creative writing, fiction writing. That's what I wanted to do. And there were two classes and they were maxed out at like 14 students a class. And so you submitted samples and I didn't get in as a freshman and that was hard. And then I summoned up the courage to try it again as a sophomore and I didn't get in again. And so that just said to me at that early stage of my life, you must not be good at this thing that you thought you were good at. And that was humbling, but it also, I got to funnel that energy into writing English papers and history papers and American civilization papers instead. Another long story shortened is so that when Bob Carpenter first gave me the opportunity when I first moved from Brown to Bates. Hey, would you like to be the Rick Riley of Inside Lacrosse Magazine? I was like, oh my God, this somebody's giving me an opportunity saying that they like other stuff that they have read enough to give me an opportunity, which is why, like you, I, I love your line about balancing out the pathology of, of, of trying to be involved in athletics. So I will end this segment by asking you, do you still today find any outlet for your writing? Yeah, I, you know, it's, I, I think it's it's funny listening to you sort of describe that experience of applying, submitting something, getting rejected, working up the courage to submit again, right? It's like what you just described is the process of trying out for a team. It's the process of, you know, going to U.S. team tryouts. It's the process of every season, there's a younger guy who's in, who's better. And it's like, I think that that for me, I as I've gotten older and and been sort of not pivoting but changing how I view my role as a coach in lacrosse and thinking about lacrosse, I've become much less interested in X's and O's and much more interested in sort of the the soft skills that we build as athletes that separate us from, you know, separated me from somebody who was probably more talented than I was. And I think that it's it's those, it's, it's, I fell in love with process at a really young age. And I know that that's a super trite phrase that we hear time and time again now, right? It's like, be process oriented. Don't be results oriented, have a growth mindset, be able to be able to confront challenges as something that you can tackle versus something that's going to knock you back. And for me, writing, it's something that I do very personally on my own. And, you know, it's, 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 
it's a process of every day sitting down and confronting something that you're trying to get better at. And when people, you know, it's when I retired and I retired, I finally stopped playing because I realized that I was, you, I think you hit this tipping point as an athlete where, where it's one of the curses of being an athlete is your brain gets better and better and better and better as your body sort of goes the opposite direction. So you have this inverse relationship between your mind and your body. And my, my mind was sharp and my body had started to, to drop off enough that, that I was like, oh, this just, you know, it's like I'm walking away from a game where I scored two goals and had an assist. And I'm thinking about all the plays I missed because when I was at my top, it was, a you know, I was able to, to get those plays. And I think that, that, that when I walked away from playing, everyone was like, oh, you must miss, you must miss the competition. You must miss the games. And I'm like, honestly, God, I hated the games. The games made me nervous. I didn't sleep. I was, you know, constantly thinking about, you know, how I was going to do the mistakes I was going to make. You're right. It's like, again, you're trying to keep those wolves at bay in your head when you're playing. But what I missed was, 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 and again, I recognize how trite this sounds, but I missed that process, that daily process of I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to push this rock up this hill. And there's some lunatics out there who find, who really find joy and meaning in that process. And for me, I've been able to sort of move that process into the writing side now. And that's where it's, that's where it's, so for me, it's like that process of sitting down every day and trying to take an hour and you know how it is, right? It's like, I've got kids, I've got, you know, spring break training with trilogy coming up. It's like, where am I going to find an hour to just sit down and see if I can, if I can, you know, get to that place. And it's right. It's like, going out and playing a game. It's like some games you get to that place where every shot you take goes in. And some days you sit down and you stare at the screen and you're like, man, I I, I can't even begin to write a sentence right now. I really, ad- thank you. I really admire that discipline. I hope to get there someday, ju- just the everyday. And, and I realized, and it was good that I didn't think about it more, perhaps, and Adam, I promise we're going to give you an opportunity to get into this conversation in a second. Um, but it was incredibly valuable. Talk about the process to have a deadline every month for 22 years. And just to, re- and I am, that was not something that I was good at in college. I was a horrible procrastinator. And now all of a sudden I had to find a way to be to overcome those obstacles that I put in my own way. So now here I am. And I, and I, again, it was the right thing. My process was correct in what took me, got me to the conclusion to tell Terry Foy, I'm not a college lacrosse coach anymore. I've made a decision. It's the right decision for me and Ollie and, and our lives. But I, that's, I'm not that, I'm not that person anymore. And so if I brought value to that space, I hope it was, presenting as a college lacrosse coach. And since I'm not that person anymore, it doesn't make sense for me to be in that role. Now I really miss that. I don't have that reason to go through that process all the time and be thinking about potential pieces all the time. I really miss it. So what you might say to me right now is, well, Peter, you know, uh, you're not, you're still on the planet taking breath into your lungs. So that opportunity is still there for me. And I just need to start doing it. Hi, Adam. Peter, I'm going to ask you this because as we sit here and I read through Matt's awards and accolades and you think about what he just spoke about, you know, it sounds almost like 
when you graduated from college, you, you are kind of person that you need like three or four different things. So I want to change gears into applying the process of you mentioned earlier of how can I get better at this game? You played for a dominant dynasty in college where you weren't, to be honest, you as good as you were after college. When did you realize and what made you realize what you had to do? And I hate to say this. You only get three sentences. I, I don't think there was a moment where where I realized specifically that I that I had to do it. It was more like it was obvious. I mean, I got to Princeton and I was like, whoa, I don't I'm not at this level. And so it's it, it again, it's like I used that metaphor. It was like, oh, I've got a rock to push up a mountain. I have to argue with you. I don't understand what level you're talking about. At that point, the monster was built. It was built. You were there for round two. So just getting there, man, we played together in high school. You weren't fooling anyone in high school. So my question to you, and I know you're very, very humble. And the thing that I'm just going to come out and ask you, and Pete alluded to it earlier, by the time you hung it up, you were one of the best ever two-handed shooters in the midfield on the run or standing still. And in high school and college, you were a ball heavy kid that played inside nine or 10 yards. So how did you yeah, go no. from changing where you played? And to be really honest with you, was there a person, a thing, or a time that allowed you to become such a dominant shooter? Yeah, there was. It's 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 Ryan freaking Boyle, and and I have to tell this story. You know, it be and it's it's funny because he's my best friend now, but it's like it's part of my lacrosse story, and it's and it's one of those it's one of those moments again, right. It's like a, it's like an either or situation. So my senior year, I'm a returning captain, all American. I'm the quarterback of the offense. I'm playing behind the cage. I'm an attackman. I shoot 83 miles an hour. I can't, I can't shoot outside 12 yards. And, you know, we, uh, uh, Ryan and I tried to coexist for a game or two and Mets and T brought me into the office and they were like, dude, you had a great run. We're moving you to midfield. And so it was one of these moments where I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I'm not going to play lacrosse. I'm going to prove to them how valuable I am. And they're going to miss me. And Boyle can't run by a garbage can. He's six inches shorter than I am. Right. And I was pissed for 48 hours. I hated him for 48 hours. And I was legitimately in my head. Right. That like that, like hurt, you know, vain part of yourself is like, I'm out of here. And then I I had that, you know, whatever you call it, the super ego, the whatever it was that sort of stepped in and was like, dude, when you walk away and quit, it's just going to verify everything they think about you. And that's not, you know, it's like, that's not how you want this to end. And so I, I moved to midfield, we played Virginia and I got, and you know, I mean, you can remember Adam from high school. It's like, I think, you know, it's like, I was so good at getting by guys running up, right? Like, so dodging from X, getting a step on a guy and flying upfield. I could never like Mark Millen or Friday or any of those attackmen who could fly upfield and somehow have the hands to shoot back against the grain. Like every attackman can do that now. I could never do it. When I moved to midfield, when I was moved to midfield, I got above the cage and I was like, oh wow, when I run by this guy, the goal is still right in front of me. This is a lot easier. I don't have to shoot behind me. I just shoot forward. And so it was like, it was kind of 
again, right, it's like all these trite cliches of, you know, it's like you shut a door, you open a window, you shut a window, you open a door. It was it was very much one of those sliding door moments where I got to midfield and I was like, oh, wow, this makes so much more sense for me. And I was able to play with Boyle for a year and I watched why he was good at attack. And I was like, oh, man, I can't do the thing. I don't see the game the way he does yet. I need to add that. And then I got to midfield and I was like, okay, here are the things that I can do really well. Here are the things I can't do well. And I know you only gave me three sentences, but I think it's important to to point out that like one of the things, right? Like all the attributes that made me able to, to continue getting better. One of them was I was always, I was always super self-critical, right? I was always like, what are the things I, I was never interested in the things I was good at because I was like, okay, those are the things I'm good at push those over here to the side. What are the things I suck at? What are the things I can't do? And it was like, obvious, as you know, I couldn't shoot. You said it. I couldn't shoot outside 10 yards. And so I ended up making the US team after that senior season, basically because I had the versatility. And when you try out for those teams, it's like there are always two or three guys that they pick who are those slash guys, those swing guys who can, if you know half your attack gets sick because they eat some random food in Manchester or Perth, Australia, and they're food poisoned out of the game, you've got two guys you can throw in on attack. If same thing happens in your midfield, you got a guy you can throw in there. So I was that swing guy. And so that summer I was back here in Western Mass. I was working for Warrior. I called the dudes in the Warrior office and I was like, send me a case of balls. And I just spent, and I was, you know, I, I, another thing I often say is I was always, I was always a smart kid, but I was gullible as hell. And I was kind of dumb at the same time. So it was like, I had it in my head that, oh, Malcolm Gladwell tells me if I invest 10,000 hours, which is right since been sort of debunked or it's like been moved around. I'm like, if I spend, if I spend 10,000 hours shooting a lacrosse ball, I can learn to shoot a lacrosse ball, right? Again, dumb enough to believe this. And so I spent that summer shooting righty and lefty, just both hands, righty and lefty. And I would stand, I mean, I did this, this really simple, dumb, basic drill where I stood eight yards away from the cage because I didn't want to have to chase lacrosse balls over and over again. And I just shot righty to the top corner, lefty to the top corner. And I would put down hundred balls and I would just do it, you know, just deliberately over and over and over again for, you know, two hours every day. And then I, and then I have this, it's funny and I'll stop here after this one, but I have this vivid memory of being in uh, an MLL game in my first or second season. And I was playing in Harbor Yard in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It was this, this minor league baseball stadium. There was turf put over the pitcher's mound. It was insane. First few years of pro lacrosse. I dodged right to left down the alley um, against the cannons and the guy who's guarding me, um, was Madigan who went to UMass. And I remember it vividly. I just, I just split. And without thinking, I just ripped this shot lefty high to hop. And it was this moment where in my head, I was like, there it is. That's like all those hours that I just invested. And I didn't think about it for a second. And I had the muscle memory in my body just knew what to do. So I'm sure that Adam was not holding you to a three sentence limitation on that. I'm, I'm positive. We would, it would be folly to interrupt yeah. <laughs> any of that. And as I listen to you, Matt, you know, and, and again, is this part of why, part of why we are choosing the people that we choose to spend this hour with to talk? Yes. Is that 
there are a lot of people whose memories are not great uh, outside of our sport, but certainly inside of our sport as well. And so as I listen to you speak, again, I just come back to as somebody who coached college across for 40 years, what's old always becomes new. And you were positionless or actually multiple positions, as you said, but now we call it positionless because somehow that's a cooler thing that somebody presented at the national convention at some point. And it, and it caught on way before it was cool. And as I listened to you describe not just your process, you know, but your game, especially your success in the pros and where you went to school, I know I'm saying something that's probably been said a million times before, but you were Tom Schreiber before Tom Schreiber was born, you know? So with that as a long complimentary setup, you've also... And you've gone through your own processes that because of your gifts and because of your choices has lasted a longer time than many, than most athletes. How has this, all of the knowledge that you've gained and whether you want to make it specifically about shooting or shooting on the run or not, I, I open it up to you, but how has that all impacted what you prioritize when you are teaching young players? So, I mean, that's a great question. And it's, I think you know as i as i mentioned earlier so much of as i've as i've developed um as a coach and you know you went through this and and i think one of the things that i'm i'm sure i'm going to speak for you here and just say that one of the things that made you a great coach was you're constantly trying to get better and i think as i've you know it's like for the first 15 years i coached i was like i'm going to teach this kid the technique that i know works for me and so I would, I had, you know, oh, it's like, I, I'm a big fan of sort of, because I love all these different sports, I would, I would sort of create this Frankenstein monster of different sports analogies, baseball, you know, you're getting the rotation of a pitcher, you're doing a crow hop, like an outfielder. And I would build this sort of technique of, okay, I think this is how you shoot. And then I would go and I would watch somebody else do it and they would have a different approach. And I'm like, there's so many different ways to teach this. and so. What I, what I think now is, and, it, and it's interesting because I think that we have this, this misapprehension in our head that there's one way to shoot or there's a proper way to shoot or there's a fundamental way to shoot. And, and anybody who spends any time doing anything knows that that's just, that's complete BS. That's not the case. There are tons of different ways to shoot. There are thousands of them. Every shooter has a different sort of technique, skill, idea that made them effective. And so for me, when I'm coaching shooting now, I think what I'm trying to coach is basically, I, you know, it's like I, I give these talks where I'm, where I, where I say, look, like at the end of the day, all that matters are the hours that you spend working. And it's like, you can, you know, it's like kids are always their kids, live in a world right now where things happen instantly and they're used to having answers and information and data given to them instantly. And the thing is, it's like, you just got to go work on it. And so my thought when I'm teaching these kids to shoot is I actually interfere less technically than I ever have before. I, I, you know, if there's a kid who's doing something glaringly wrong, I'll step in and be like, Hey, you need to adjust that. But my big thing is trying to teach kids how to practice deliberately, but also how to 
play deliberately because I think that we have this mentality as coaches where we're like, oh, to become great at something, you have to be mindlessly in the backyard, like hammering it away, hammering it away until your hands are bleeding and it's snowing. And it's like, as a kid now, you're pitching that to a kid. Kids gonna be like, nah, I'm good, man. Like, I'd rather like stay inside and chill with my Xbox. And it's like, okay, if I'm going to sell a kid on hard work, I have to figure out how to make hard work deliberately playful, right? I've got to create a sense of competition, a way of, and it's like, when I do that now as a coach, I'm going back to myself as a 12 year old, an 18 year old idiot who had all these games, right? I'd be like, okay, I've got 30 seconds. I've got to put, you know, I would put tape across the bars in the upper corners. And I'd be like, I've got 30 seconds to get 15 shots under that tape. And if I hit the tape and break it, I got to start all over again. If I miss the cage, I have to start all over again, right? It's like, I was so good because I grew up in the boonies by myself as a lacrosse player because I didn't have a ton of friends who played lacrosse. I learned how to do that where I created this, this these great ways of making discipline fun, right? This scaffolding where I was like, oh, it's not, you know, people would be like, dude, it's like, how do you do? And I'd be like, it's fun. It's what I like to do. And that was, so that's what I'm trying more and more now as a teacher and as a coach to instill kids is like, find a way to make this, like, it's like, we describe it as like a web of want, create a web of want where there is like this, you want to be out there. You, it's not, I have to, because that's where you end up with kids who are like, I'm out, right? I don't want to do this anymore. It's a web of want. So you avoid burnout and you avoid bore out. That's a phenomenal answer. Thank you. And you're so right about your, you're right about everything you said. You're so right about your last point. And it's hearkening me back to Mike Levin saying one of the most, not that this is a new point to any of the three of us, but he put it the most succinctly maybe that I've ever heard. And honestly, I don't think people in our sport, decision makers, influencers speak enough about this. And we're not going to get into this as a topic. I'm just saying it. For us, the three of us right now, Mike said something to the effect of, and it's the whole thing about, do you put the best kids with the best kids when they're really little, or do you mix them up or how, all that? It was around that decision, right? And Mike said, if you're really interested in growing the game, then what you don't want to do is what he sees some people doing, which is, he said to us, he said, Peter, Adam, you know the best way to make your little select team really good. And we said, how Mike? And he said, get the kids who aren't good to stop playing. I was like, wow, that, that, that's deep. So I, I want to ask Adam a question because we have a rare, I have a rare moment here. I'm sitting in the room with you two cats, which is a special Valentine's day in my life, but you two share some history, some very specific history and so I'd be a fool if I don't let the world in on whatever you two are about to say. You played high school lacrosse together. Adam, you're younger or older than Matt? I'm older than Matt. Okay. So you played together. You were older Hotchkiss student. You were younger Hotchkiss student. Tell our listeners and me and each other a little bit about what it was like to play with each other. You going well, first, Adam, or you? Yeah, I'll go first. So I, I was fortunate. My brother was also at school. Uh, he was a goalie, my brother Mo, and he was on the team. And we had a pretty good collection by the time Matt showed up. Um, but you could tell right away, obviously, that 
Uh, Matt was a next level athlete through his success in soccer and uh, always kicking the ball around. He was always stringing sticks. I still think about the sticks, the leather sticks he used to string up for my brother. But the one thing that stands out is Matt used to have these pair of L30 black all leather gloves. I never saw a pair like them ever again. And I only saw that pair. And I would look at him and I was like, Matt, you got to be all business if you're going to bring those out in New England. <laughs> but what I've learned from Matt as his career has gone on and we've watched from a distance is the same things still exist. He still smiles. He's still confident. He still puts in the hard work and he's still there for those that he's had shared experience with. You know, I'll say it right now when, when the service for my family, you know, uh, on the 29th of 2019, Matt rolled in there. It was towards the end of the service. And I remember he's like, I just remember him being there for me, you know, and it's just kind of always stuck. I know it sticks with my brother um, and shared experience. And one thing that's always stood out and I joke around like Matt and his parents are everywhere. If Mr. Strebel's at a New England lacrosse game, you're at the right game. He was raised right. And our shared experience goes back to just, you know, the game and what brought us together. Pete, we talked about this with Brett a week ago, but like, I wouldn't have known Matt if I wasn't playing the game. I could have been in Hotchkiss and played football and baseball or football and whatever, but it was an opportunity to watch him turn into one of the best midfielders, lacrosse players ever to play the game. Thank you, Adam. It's uh, What was it like to play with the most impressive Cavs in the history of Hotchkiss athletics? You, 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 you <laughs> got me. It was like one of the first things. I mean, so I can remember when I went through the process of applying to schools and I was looking at Deerfield Academy and I was looking at Hotchkiss and I went and I watched a Deerfield Hotchkiss lacrosse game at Deerfield. It had like Henry Oakey, Rob Lyle was in that game. And, and it was, there were just, it, the level of lacrosse blew my mind. And on that field, right, with like Henry Oakey, Rob Loyal, Lyle, these like D1 guys who were phenomenal lacrosse players in their own right, Adam was like, Adam was like this, it was impossible to describe as like a ninth grader watching Adam play sports. And, and it was like, I wanted to, I wanted to be a multi-sport athlete. I wanted to play soccer. I wanted to play lacrosse. And I watched Adam and it was like, it was literally, I mean, the, the, he was a man among boys. It was like physically he was dominant. The way he played lacrosse was dominant. And so when I got to Hotchkiss, I mean, part of the reason I went to Hotchkiss was because I wanted to play with him, right? It's like, I saw him as a ninth grader and I was like, that dude is, is, is a monster. I want to be able to play with him. I want to be able to watch him play. And so I went to Hotchkiss and I remember one of the things that that I've always done as a young player, and and when you when you look up to figures like Adam or or you know like later like Roy Colsey, these people who sort of set a cultural tone, when you look up to them, you you develop a sense of responsibility for like playing well for them. And I remember when I got to Hotchkiss, that as Adam said, that team was loaded. I mean, loaded. We what did we lose? One game. We lost to Deerfield. That was it, right? Yeah. You know, we lost one game that year. That team was absolutely loaded. And 
I had no idea that wearing leather leather gloves was flashy because you know me, Adam. I would never have done that I if know. I'd known it was flashy. My mom, I didn't know anything about lacrosse. My mom got me these L30s that were leather. I hated them because they took so long to break in. And then after you graduated the next year, I actually went back to using the, the, the regular garbage ones because they were more flexible. Anyway, I got there and I was like, man, it's like I have to be next level in order to like, in order to, to fulfill my responsibility to these senior guys, to Adam, to Mo, to Saul, to these guys, to Keith Willa, these guys who were older than I was, who had this standard of like, we're going to go out and we're going to win. We're going to be the best team in new England. And so it was like that I'm, you know, it's like, I still look up to Adam as a role model, as somebody who set, set this standard of excellence in lacrosse for me. And so it's like that gratitude definitely goes both ways where it's like, I'm grateful that I got a single year to play with Adam and to see the way that he competed. Because at the end of the day, there are a billion dudes out there who can shoot a lacrosse ball, who can, who can feed a lacrosse ball, who can dodge, whatever it is. There aren't many people who compete the way Adam Pascal competed. And so like the DNA of competition of like having to win of, of like being angry to win was something that I got from Adam. Wow. You all that, that, that was as fun as Thank I you, hope it might be, man. And I'm so glad we're, 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 the, the, the fates have brought us together. You just talked about competing, Matt. And obviously you competed at not one, but two sports at a really high level in college. Um, and Adam did as well, right? So you both know quite a bit about competing. One of the things that is maybe most rare about your accomplishments, as Adam spoke about in your intro is that you made three different U.S. world teams. Uh, that's something that most of us who ever aspired to play at a high level could only dream about. You have lived it. So could you tell us a little bit about what that experience one, two, or three times was all about? That's just a remarkable thing. Uh, you know, it's that is that experience, the experience from start to finish, right? From From trying out, to competing, to, to winning a goal, to losing. Cause I've done both. It's, it is in terms of just all the, all the elements of, of focus, preparation, um, competing, all the things that you talk about as an athlete, that's where it, that's the confluence of all those things coming together. And so it's, you know, I, I was, I was the experience over 12 years, which is what three teams. And actually I, I, I tried to make a fourth. And so we're talking about 16 years of, of, of competing lacrosse. Your, your, my game evolved, right? I brought different things to the table. I made the team for different reasons. Um, I think my best tryout honestly was for the 2014 team that I didn't make. Um, I, I, so it's, it's, I've had the experience of winning gold, of losing, you know, when we lost in 06, if you look at the roster of that 06 team, it's, it's possibly the best team on paper of all time. I mean, it's like, it might, if you put Paul Canabene, Canabine on that team, Beaner on that team as a face-off guy, you, yeah. you've got a, just a lights out. You know, we had all three pals. We had gags. We had, um, I mean, just go through the list of all timers and they're on that team and we lost. 
right? We lost to a Canadian team that was itself one of the all-time greatest teams, right? It had the Gates, it had Junior, it had Brody. So it's like, you're on a field, that field in 06, when we lost, it's the best collection of talent I've ever been on a field with. And it's, it was heartbreaking. We lost, I think it was like 12, 11 and we got back to the dorm. It's, it's funny that, you know, that you talk about the memories and the things that you remember. What I remember, the two things I remember most vividly are losing in 06. And we left, I left my silver. I don't even, some janitor in a dorm in Hamilton, Ontario has my silver medal because I didn't bring it home. Right. Cause it was like, we didn't go to Hamilton, Ontario to win silver. And it was like, that was the first time the U S had lost in since the seventies. So that was like this crazy formative experience. We ended up Roy, our Boyle and I were on that team. Sweeney's right. We came back and we were possessed. We ended up just like blitzing the MLL the rest of that season. Cause we were so frankly pissed about the outcome of that experience. And then 2010, right. Like Coach Pressler, all the coaches of that staff, it was, we'd lost. And so they were building a team specifically to beat Canada. And it was where, you know, it was like that four year period from 06 to 2010, there was this real like post-mortem of the 06 loss and, and Jody Martin and all these internal us lacrosse people were like, Hey, what do we have to do better? And they came to us as players and as leaders. And they're like, what do we need to do? And then you look at that 2010 team and it's like, we bring in Schiller who's the best short stick D midi going at the time. He was playing indoor with all those Canadian guys. He had scouting reports on every single one of them, right? It's like they built a team specifically to beat Canada. And then when we ended up winning in 2010, an insane game, that, you know, it's like that process again, right? We're talking again and again and again, this process of like getting punched in the mouth, getting told that you're not going to be an attackman anymore, getting told that you're second place in the world games. And then, you know, you, you soak up the misery, you come back and you're like, okay, let's get back to work again. And then four years later, the outcome is different. And so it's like, again, right. It's I hate to repeat myself, but when you're in love with that process, you find it no matter where, right. You find it with the world team. You find it professionally, you find it writing, you find it writing for inside lacrosse. It's just that process of getting pushed down and getting back up, getting pushed down and getting back up. And it's like when I was at Hotchkiss and I went to wear number 19, Adam came to me and he's like, Doug Sproul wore 19. He was awesome. You can't wear 19. And then he was finally like, okay, you can wear 19, but you better not suck. That was like one of those moments where Adam punched me in the mouth the minute I got to my lacrosse season at Hotchkiss, but he let me do it and it wore out and I wore 19. Love it. Matt, listening to you talk and flashing back, and I often think, even though this is a podcast, we do this on Zoom, and I look at everyone's background, and Pete shows off his family, his amazing kitchen, his Six Tribes shirt. Six Tribes? There you go. Very and nice. Matt, Matt, you have all these world championships and all these fancy warrior things you could possess and all this crazy stuff, and I see a helmet, a pair of gloves, and just a ton of books. Where's your background, brother? So, so to be honest, I went into my closet at about 9 a.m. this morning and I was like, ah, damn, where's, where's all my lacrosse stuff that I have left? And I have, I have a bucket helmet, a bucket helmet that I wore at Hotchkiss and I have, uh, this barrage stuff 
And the barrage experience was the highlight of my lacrosse playing career. And so I was like, I need to put some lacrosse stuff in my background. If this ever goes up online, no one's going to believe that I played lacrosse. So this, this was put up here literally half an hour ago. The books stay here because, uh, you know, it's, I, 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 I gave all my, all my stuff away. I gave all my stuff away. My wife was like, do you have anything to give our kids? I literally, so here's a good story about the, 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 the crap that I got as a lacrosse player. So I won the MVP of the 07 or 06 championship weekend. And I got this Bud Light trophy and I gave it, my grandmother's from Rochester, little Roch, Roch shout out here. Um, she's from Brighton. My mom grew up in Brighton. So Boopy Betty, as we called her, came to every game I ever played in Rochester all the way up until she was in her 90s. She would sit there with a Labatt's in the front row, freezing in the rain. She was an absolute, absolute monster, a warrior. She, I gave her after the, I was flying on plane back to Iowa because I was in grad school. I gave her the MVP trophy. So she passed away two years ago, lived an awesome long life. And in her possessions, we have this Bud Light ridiculous MVP trophy. It's now, it's now on my son's like bedside table and he thinks it's a spaceship. So if he thinks it's a spaceship, we barely have lacrosse equipment here. I want to make sure that my kids don't have to have that burden. If they choose to play lacrosse of knowing sort of what I did, they'll find out they have the internet. Um, they think I'm a coach. Like my, my kids, my, my daughter's like, wait, did you play lacrosse? And they came to one of the hall of fame things and didn't really ask many questions, but all of the stuff that I had, I gave away at raffles at, at camp. And that's how, that's how I kept getting kids to come back to trilogy camp was uh, raffles. Oh, but it also, that's really cool. But it also says quite a bit about you as a human that you've been supporting throughout this interview you're define you you define yourself a number of different ways and so you did not look at that as giving away your identity right and so something that we try to ask uh everyone that we've had on thus far matt and we've all heard a lot about and our listeners will hear a lot of uh, really interesting smart articulate information about you your process your career something we try to ask every guest that we've had thus far is can you remember, and you can take your time to think about it if you need to, a time when lacrosse gave you not necessarily what you wanted, to quote the Rolling Stones, I suppose, but what you needed? I mean, I could give you 50 times, 50 times, right? I've, I've, I've mentioned a bunch of them, right? When Ryan took my job, it wasn't what I wanted. It was what I needed to make me a better player. When we lost in 06, like all these, these different moments of, of sort of disappointment or loss on a, on a, on a more, on a more sort of macro level, I think, um, I think what lacrosse you know, it's I I I I'm gonna say this, and I hesitate to say it because it makes it sound like like I'm like I'm belittling the sport of lacrosse, or I don't love the sport of lacrosse, which isn't the case. But I I kind of feel like I failed down to lacrosse, right? When I was a when I was a ten year old kid growing up in Massachusetts, I wanted to be Dwight Evans, right? Who was a right fielder for the Sox. Right. He had this crazy stance. I, I thought he was awesome. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. 
And then, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times, I played soccer. I wanted more than anything to be a professional soccer player. I wanted to go play in Europe. And you, you, you hit these moments, right? Where you're like, Hey, I'm not going to be Dwight Evans, right? I was a good baseball player, but I kind of got bored with it. And then my sister came home with a lacrosse stick and I was like, well, this game is really fun. And so I started to fall in love with lacrosse. And then even, even when I was going through, and you can attest to this, right? When I was going through the college recruiting process, I was a soccer player in my mind. I was going to college to play soccer. I, I played like a week of lacrosse every summer and then my lacrosse season and that was it. I did not play lacrosse. I played soccer constantly because I loved it. It was what I wanted to do. But when, when it came down to it, when I was, you know, graduating from college and my, my, my college soccer coach was like, Hey, you know, uh, I could, I, you, the, the Metro stars are willing to have you come in to do a tryout you know, do you want to do it? And everything in my heart was like, I want to do this. I want to go try out. But it was after the fall of my senior soccer season, I would have missed my senior lacrosse season. We had a great chance of winning a national championship. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to play lacrosse. I'm going to do my lacrosse season this spring. I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to do the soccer. And then when I graduated, I tried to play, I played uh, you know, but in professional soccer in the league below the, the, the MLS. And I was bouncing around between, I would have a soccer game in Pittsburgh and then I would drive to a soccer, to a lacrosse game in New Jersey. I would have to create random excuses for why I was missing things because it was a total breach of contract to be playing two sports at that time. And then it reached a point where, you know, and this is sort of back to Adam's question about like, when did I decide that I really want to become good? It basically became this moment where I was like, I have a chance to be really great at lacrosse. And it wasn't what I wanted because what I wanted was to be a professional soccer player in England and Europe, but it was what I needed because it basically opened the door to the last 30 years of my life. And the last 30 years of my life have just been blessed. And, you know, it's like, again, I, I hesitate to use that word because it's it's sort of lost meaning with how often people use it. But like, I've legitimately been blessed to, you know, meet my best friends, have the people who are meaningful to me in my life be people that I've become connected through and stayed connected to through lacrosse. And so it's, you know, it's like, it wasn't at the time what I wanted, but as you said, right, it's the thing that I needed. Wow. That's a, that's a deep and phenomenal and complex answer. Thank you. Let the listeners that have stayed with us, that will stay with us, learn what Matt and Adam already know, since Matt, Matt just referenced his two-sport superstarness uh, in high school and college, that he is the only recruit in the history of Brown University recruits anyway, that this also goes to what we've all learned about Matt in this hour, Matt's unusually high capacity to follow what Matt knows is, is best for Matt. And for that, I give you nothing but respect. Matt said no, not just to me, as you can imagine, the energy level I had back then. I mean, a very persuasive, charismatic recruiter paired at the dinner table with Mike Noonan who was winning Ivy championships in soccer at Brown, was taking them to the NCAA tournament, has won national championships uh, since he left Brown. We were so good and persuasive. And Matt's mom, as he just said, grew up in Brighton. 
I also spent a huge chunk of my life. I mean, this couldn't have set up any better. We were so good that night at Outback Steakhouse when Outback Steakhouse was a huge freaking deal that Matt left that weekend going, I I know where I'm going. And it's a place in Princeton, New Jersey. So Matt, I just, I have to ask as we are winding up here, I don't give you a chance to respond to what I just said. That, uh, and again, we've talked a lot about your writing, which we really, really appreciated. I just have to ask you, uh, do you have any book right now or that you've read recently uh, that's made a big impact on you that you want to share with us? Oh, wow. Uh, I'm, I'm reading constantly. What are, you, what are you looking for? Fiction or nonfiction? What do what you I'm, take your pick? I want to answer it. Um, I, uh, uh, See, I'm reading the new James McBride. Um, I'm, I always go back and like like once a once a year, I'll pick up a fr- any Jonathan Franzen um, and kind of bang through one of those. I'm currently rereading Purity, which is um, his novel about uh, sort of like WikiLeaks. Uh, it's, I mean, all of his novels are so sprawling and complex; it's hard to distill into one sentence. But uh, I'll, I'm rereading that right now. On the nonfiction side. Um, because I just present, we just presented at the MYL uh, convention that you and I were talking about off air. Um, I've been reading a ton, I've been rereading a ton of the sort of Angela Gluck, the the stuff on growth mindset, on grit, on um, and then a, a, a book that I'm really into right now is is this book Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Um, I heard him on a podcast that I that I love, and uh, I went in got his book, and it's it's basically about exactly what you alluded to with Mike, this idea that, you know, in, in, in youth sports, we tend to find the kids who are biggest and fastest and the best early on. And we take those kids and we prioritize them and we push them up the chain and they become good. But the real diamonds in the rough, the kids sort of like me, right? Like Jared Newman, who's somebody that I coached who came out of nowhere to become this great, you know, PLL defenseman. Um, they're the guys that you find sort of slipping through the cracks. And Adam Grant has this phenomenal book where he, I, you should, you should check it out coach because he talks about procrastination and he talks about what that actually is and how you can actually make it work for you and how you should get back into coaching in some way. And like, it's never too late. It's a fascinating read just about basically all these. Um, what I like about it is it's, it's all, he's an organizational psychologist. He teaches at the Wharton business school at Penn and it's a lot of it's, for businesses, but businesses are teams, right? So from a coaching perspective, it's something that I've really been diving into and it's changed. It's, it's, it's already influenced the way I'm going to approach doing camps this summer. And that concept I, I alluded to of deliberate play, that's a term that I didn't know existed. I had in my head and then reading Adam Grant's book, I was like, oh, this is deliberate play. This is what allowed me to spend all those hours in the backyard. Wow. Thank you, Matt. Matt, that is a great answer. Here on the program, on the podcast, using pieces of me and Pete as Pete as we build this, we're trying to really make it not an esoteric or an eccentric, but a very, you can tell who designed the program experience. (laughs) So Pete, what are you reading right now? Well, so Adam, I'm going to, one, I'm going to actually physically feature in a second, which is right behind me. But just based on what, Part of what Matt just, the answer that Matt just gave us, I'm going to, and I wish I had it nearby because I'm going to forget one of the author's names, but I'm going to really recommend to both of you. I believe I've shared this with you, Adam, and you may know of it, Matt, because you strike me as a voracious reader. Uh, This book called The Dawn of Everything. Have you heard about this? The Dawn of Everything. 
So I am going to so strongly, and I am literally fighting my friends from Rochester and the fights that we're having exactly support how right the two authors of this book are. So the premise, if you don't know about it, it's one man is a historian, um, one is an archaeologist, and they basically turn every historical theory about the social evolution of mankind completely on its head. And it's just, it's it's the dawn of everything, a new definition of mankind or something like that. Our oldest child told me about it two Christmases ago. Holly, my wife, pardon me, bought it for me this Christmas. I'm 350 pages in. In the forward, it quotes like a tenured professor, maybe the chair of the department at UCLA or, you know, some fairly big time place. The, the pull quote is, these authors have completely turned upside down everything that I thought I knew about the history of the world and the history of mankind. So I put that one out there. I just, I'm not going to have it on screen. The dawn of everything. Fascinating. Be ready to fight with your friends if you read it. Uh, but this in uh, honor of the beginning of Black History Month on Inside Roll with a Side of Pasta, we actually come from a place where every month uh, should be considered Black History Month. But this book is called Black Ball. And the subtitle is Kareem Abdul Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the NBA. And it is by Teresa uh, Runstetler. I hope I pronounced her name right. And again, if you're my age, you are just, you're talking about so many of my heroes. You were going to be a professional soccer player. I was going to be a professional basketball player, except for that the power forward that I was able to be in seventh and eighth grade stopped growing. So I made a great decision and then I blew up my knee. So I, I started coaching instead to, to get rid of that energy. But Black Ball, it, it's just, it's so, even though it was written about the 70s and 80s, it is so current. Uh, and again, many of the things that we are discovering uh, politically, historically, socially, culturally, uh, again, not, mu not much of it is new. So that's my, uh, my, re my recommendation. I recommend I'm, I'm getting into the dawn of everything and, and Black Ball. I highly recommend both of them. Very different books. Peter, I love those suggestions. And that's what we're trying to do here. So I just want to talk to Matt here as we're winding down. There's a story that's getting around lacrosse that I just think we got to bring to light a little bit because we talk about, I love to talk about um, people that help people without them knowing it, but also people that help people knowing exactly what they're doing with this opportunity. And people talk a lot about, you mentioned him earlier, Jared Newman, who's a Western Mass guy who shoots the ball like 100,000 miles an hour. Matt, can you just give us real quick, just kind of tell us about that? His yeah, role I in mean, your life, or shall we say your role in his life? No, it's, it goes both ways. Um, you know, it's, I, my first day, my first day of, of coaching at Northampton, um, it's, just, it's a, a local public high school. I'm in the parking lot. I was playing lacrosse at the time. And I have a trunk full of gear and, um, there's a kid walking, walking through the parking lot. He walks up to the trunk of my car and he says, Hey coach Striebel, I'm thinking of playing lacrosse. And I look up at him and I'm like, yeah, you are. Here's a D pole. Right. Cause you know, everybody, anybody who's played lacrosse knows that D is the easiest position possible to play. You don't have to be able to throw or catch. And, uh, I, uh, I, 
talk to the basketball coach, uh, this guy, Ray Harp, who's one of my, my best friends now. And Jared had played basketball for him. And I asked him and I was like, Hey, I'm trying to change the culture here. The last thing I need is a senior in his, you know, last two weeks of his spring, two months of his spring seat, spring of his high school career, torpedoing any effort I'm making at accountability. And, and coach Harp looked at me and he's like, you're going to love this kid. He guards five positions for me. He'll do whatever you ask. And, you know, it was, it was, I, I, I tell this story and when people hear this story, they think I'm kidding. I'm not. I watched them in one conditioning drill. And afterwards I got on the phone to local colleges. I called coach T. He was at Denver at the time. I called coach Metz. He was at Loyola at the time. It was so late in the process that, um, nobody had, he, he, he needed financial help to go to college and, you know, our first game, Jared played the best attackman in Western Mass. And I told him, I was like, just, just don't let him touch the ball. And Jared goose egged this kid. He couldn't cradle, couldn't throw and catch. And he just had, right, it's, it's, we've said it over and over again throughout this pod. And I'm sure everybody you've brought on has talked about it, but it's like, he just had that want, right? He had that thing where you're like, oh, this kid can outcompete anybody at anything, I don't know. I, at the time, I know now I have more insight into who he is as a person. I didn't know now why he had that, but he did. And it's like, I saw it in one conditioning drill and uh, I I spent the rest of that season basically trying to figure out a spot for him to go to do a post-grad year. And the the rest is him. You know, it's I, I, I feel like at this point, I get too much credit because all I did was I used the, you know, the, the window door phrase with Jared, but it was like, I asked him, I remember asking him, I was like, Hey, do you want to, are you willing to do this? And he's like, I want to do whatever's going to get me to the best college I can go to. And you're like, as a, as a coach, as a mentor, you're like, okay, that's exactly, you know, it's like if I sat down in a lab and was like, what's the answer I want this kid to give me right now, that was it. And he gave me that answer. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to put my name on the line for you here are my expectations, right? I want you to do well. Basically it was irrational. I was like, I want you to be the best in everything. I want you to be the best in everything you do. And he looked at me and he was like, cool, I can do that. And he has, right. He's, he's become, he's, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm proud of him and he's become a friend. He's moved from being sort of a kid that I coached to being a friend of mine. And, um, he's an amazing story. And, you know, just to bring it back full circle, he's, He's like a perfect story about what makes lacrosse different from any sport. It's like you can take a kid in the last two months of his senior year in high school, you can give him a lacrosse stick, and then he's the fastest shooter in the world however many years later. And it's like lacrosse is – I always tell people this. Lacrosse is an easy game, and if you play it the right way, it's going to take you places. Wow, Matt. Uh, Thank you. I would add he found the perfect mentor. And you found the perfect person to mentor. That that's just uh, that's just a beautiful combination. I just want to thank you for spending this much time with us today on Valentine's Day in 2024. Such a, a delight and a pleasure to listen to you, to catch up with you, to learn about all the different parts of your life and your personality. You continue to be a really multi-talented, uh, deep thinker and and person and. The other thing, Matt, that's that's really interesting, and hopefully everybody that we bring on shares at least some of this, but you just really brought it strong today, is not every great player 
is very good at thinking about, which is where it starts, or talking about how they got to where they got to. So thank you for being so good at it. Uh, thank you for being so mindful and so intentional. And thank you for sharing. It's just, it's, it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much. I mean, I, again, I, Adam asked me to come do this. And when I found out I was going to get to do it, do it with you, I was like, well, this is, this is a no brainer. And so I, I just thank Adam. I'm uh, those, for those who know me, I'm uh, rarely answering my phone. I sometimes respond to text messages and, uh, uh, so the fact that Adam stayed stayed on me, it's it's been a blast, and I'm I'm all ready to come back on whenever you guys will have me. So I appreciate it. Beautiful, Matt. This was exactly what I was hoping for. You know, we've known each other since high school, but lots happened to each of us, ups and downs, and just to be able to watch. Like the one question I didn't get to ask you is number nine. You know, I got some lacrosse nerd questions as well. I want to ask, but. You gave us an insight into one of one of the best lacrosse players ever, and one of the best human beings and and friends that that I have in my life that I'm lucky to call. So I just want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been the Inside Roll. I'm Adam Pascal, and I am Peter Lasagna with a side of pasta.